Uh, friends, just to let you know, one of the things I'm trying to do uh, in these early days of my ministry here at St. John's is to try and get around to as many pe- people as possible and ask them questions like, what do you hope I do in this place? What do you hope I don't do in this place? If you had a million dollars, what would you do in this place? What opportunities are there for ministry? All sorts of those diagnostic type questions just to get us thinking about the next season here at St. John's. The way I'm doing that primarily is twofold, to meet with key leaders of various ministries. So if you are a leader of a ministry, expect uh, my email or a text to catch up with you. Uh, But perhaps more interesting is to, for me, is to meet with the community groups or small groups uh, that happen throughout the week here and to sit and listen and then have a, a study together as well. So if you're in a, one of those small groups, community groups, uh, I might be turning up uh, to one of those groups uh, in the near future. So I, I hope you'll be there and I hope you'll share with me uh, what you love about St. John's. Before I get to the text, I just want to say uh, one other thing. I just want to thank those who came to the monthly prayer meeting on Saturday morning. Uh, at 8am down in the hall. It was a very rich time of praying for our church, our community, our world, and of course our missionaries as well. So thank you. Uh, for those who came along, you might have prayed at home. A uh, big thank you to you. And also to those who came to the Working Bee, uh, two areas were working, uh, down in the hall and clearing out a whole bunch of accumulated junk. Let's just call it that. Churches are good at that. So we got rid of a trailer load of that. And we were working up near the rectory on the boundary and we're chopping down lots and lots of weeds. Uh, No native species were harmed. And uh, then, miraculously, a uh, a chipper, uh, a a guy called Shane who lives locally, his truck, he's pulling a chipper, pulled up and said, can I give you guys a hand? And we took full advantage of that. And he was there for about three hours, so that was a great godsend as well. Uh, I've never used one of those chippers. It's great fun and incredibly dangerous all at the same time. Uh, Friends, I hope you have Jonah chapter 3 open because as we read through Jonah, we've only got two weeks left tonight and then uh, next Sunday, we are seeing a hero of Israel, uh, a prophet no less, enjoying his status as one of God's people and he does not want to share that with anyone else. Uh, We saw last week that Jonah composes a brilliant, theologically pure prayer from the belly of a fish. He uh, praises God for salvation. It's theologically accurate. It'd get an A plus if it was an essay at Moore College, the Dysus Training College. Yet Jonah neither cares for the lost or has compassion within him. And God finds it distasteful. The fish finds it nauseating. And you know the rest. Someone did ask me at the door last week, it might have been someone from this congregation, I don't recall, uh, and he said to me, isn't this all a bit awkward? That the Bible has a story like this in it. I mean, isn't it a criticism of one of Israel's heroes, one of their legends? I mean, Jonah has a book of the Bible named after him. That's probably more than you or I will ever achieve in this life. And he was right to identify that. Historians call this, you might have heard of this before, that The criterion of embarrassment. Have you heard about that? The criterion of embarrassment. Which means an account is more likely to be true when the author includes details which might embarrass the author. Which he has no reason to include unless it's true. 
Uh, and we know this. We usually leave out the embarrassing elements to the stories we tell in social settings, like when I tell people that I was in the first 15 rugby union team at Taramore High School. I mean, we never actually got 15 players on the field. It was a maximum of about 13, but don't let the facts get in the way. And the Bible is full of this sort of thing. King David composes a song, we just read it, Psalm 51. Not only does he write it, he teaches it to Israel. They use it in worship in the temple. What's the subject matter? His adultery and his murder and the shame that flowed from that. The criterion criterion of embarrassment. Almost famously, the, the women being the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Of course, a woman's testimony in the first century was not admissible in court. Uh, but this is how it happened. You would not want women to be the first eyewitnesses if you were writing the story and wanted it to believe, unless it was true. The criterion of embarrassment. It gives further credibility to the message. Yes, Jonah, it's embarrassing that the the way he feels and the way he acts, but it also makes this story more relatable, as we will soon see. Today we're thinking about the direction which compassion flows. Have you ever thought about that? The direction which compassion flows? Uh, What this story shows is that compassion flows, it always flows downhill, always flows towards the humble. And so if you have ever felt like you want God to have compassion on you, if you have ever felt that you would like more resources, compassionate resources within your heart to show compassion towards others, there's something here for you tonight. We're going to look at three things. God's compassion, the response, and the power of compassion for those who like to take notes. God's compassion, the response, and the power Uh, A friend told me once, quite some time ago, that he walked into a church and sat up the very back row, and I'd like to shout out to those of you sitting up the very back row tonight. And uh, he sat down, and then a family of Christians walked in next, and he could tell they were Christians because their Bibles were huge, you know the type, the bigger the Bible, the more seriously you, you take things, and they were black Bibles, super serious. And this Christian family sat a row or two in front of my friend. Well, the next people who came in the church, true story, were a bunch of teenagers. And I hope there's some teenagers here tonight. Well, these teenagers, uh, they didn't really have a sense of occasion. Can I put it like that? Uh, their, their feet went up on the, the chairs in front of them. They were a little boisterous and, and making some noise and probably holding up scorecards for the preacher. I don't know. Anyway, uh, Mother Christian... I was not impressed, to say the least. And she turned around, and in a voice loud enough for my friend to hear, she said, get your feet off those chairs. We paid $200 each for those chairs. The music started, she stood up, she raised her hand in worship and started praising God. I can't help but there's a bit of a gap there. I see it in my own life, and perhaps it was evident there as well. The boys quickly left the church. Sometimes there's a gap, friends, between God's compassion and ours. How do we close it? How do we grow our sense of compassion inside us so it can flow into those around us? How do we receive God's compassion? Let's have a look. God's heart for compassion. Uh, If I haven't made it clear already, God has a big heart for the lost. Big heart for the lost. For those who don't know him. 
Or to put it another way, God loves Camden. And also Norellan. He loves both of those. Uh, That's why Jesus came. To seek and save the lost. And we've seen multiple pieces of evidence in this book so far. God sending Jonah to Nineveh in the first place. God saving the pagan sailors from the violent storm. God's determination to get the recalcitrant Jonah there by sending of the fish and the, and the vomit and the resending the, the storm and the second request to go. And now he's finally here. He's finally made it to Nineveh after what could have been a much simpler journey. But here we are. In 800 years before Christ, Nineveh was a big city. 120,000 odd people. That's a huge city for the day. With a 12 kilometre city wall around it. High walls covered in limestone frescoes. Would have been incredible to see. And permeating those walls, going in all different directions of the compass, were city gates. And this is where Jonah would have spent his time. There at the city gates and in the town centre, preaching his eight-word sermon. Just eight words. And I know what you're thinking. Matt, preach more eight-word sermons. I'm more generous than that. Here are the eight words. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And it is odd, isn't it, that the only part of the sermon we have is the part that didn't happen. I find that curious. If someone came to Norellan Town Centre or Argyle Street, Camden, and said, 40 more days and this is going to be a pile of rubble, you and I would have questions. Why? When? How? All sorts of questions. It is odd, though, don't you think, that the Ninevites didn't press this prophet for more information. Were they gullible? Uh, Were they apathetic? Not quite. It's closer to the truth is that Ninevite religion didn't actually allow the average person to understand the deity's demands. I mean, they were quite arbitrary. You couldn't read the mind of the local deities. The local deities didn't speak like we have God's word and know his mind and heart. It was a mystery to them. They couldn't identify what they had done to offend a particular daily, so they were highly superstitious and they lived in fear. And so question asking may not have been a reasonable thing to do and there was no reason why the prophet might know God's mind anyway. When Jonah had preached the message for three days, uh, and I'm sure he would have gone over that eight-word sermon many times in those three days, here's the response. Have a look at chapter 4, verse 2. This is how Jonah feels about their response. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. It makes it even worse, don't you think, that the reluctant prophet knew what God was like. He knew he'd relent and show compassion. He knew this so well that he quotes from Isaiah, sorry, from Exodus 34. And for those who don't know Exodus 34, this is when Moses has just started leading the Israelites. And he said, if you want me to lead the Israelites for 40 years, I've got to know who you are. Tell me what you're like. Tell me about your character. Who am I trying to teach the Israelites to worship? And so God puts him in the cleft of a rock and covers him with his hands. And here's the very first thing God says about himself apart from his name. Exodus 34 verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, 
slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. I find that extraordinary that the very first sentence describing God starts with the word compassionate. Friends, you probably won't remember this sermon series in about six months' time, maybe even shorter than that, and that's okay. But remember this, if you remember nothing else when you think about God and others, remember the word compassionate. It is the very first word God chose to reveal himself to the world. Compassionate. And he relents from sending calamity. Let's have a look at the response. The response to Jonah's sermon, remarkable. Verse 6, the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. I imagine that's something like Hessian. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, sat down in the dust. Then the king mentions what they're repenting of. He says, let them repent, give up their evil ways, verse 8, and their violence. Who knows, God might relent and turn with compassion. And Nineveh was a violent, violent, wicked, evil city. Here's what another prophet, Nahum, that's another book in the Bible. I know it's a forgotten book, but Nahum is in the Bible. Uh, And this is what he writes about Nineveh sometime later. Chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. Many casualties, piles of dead bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses. Do you see why Jonah was a bit hesitant to go? Stumbling over corpses, a city full of blood. Um, But they do repent. And notice what the king does. There's four verbs here, without getting too nerdy. Four verbs, the doing words, uh, rises from the throne took off royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, sat down in the dust, a sign of humility. And at the king's command, widespread fasting and and prayer and the giving up of violence, and the compassion flows downhill. It flows down towards the humble, towards those who know and want help from God. And Jonah hates it. And he doesn't like it one little bit. And this is really important because if it's possible for Jonah's heart to become hardened towards the Ninevites, this is a a hero of Israel, this is a prophet, he's he's ordained, he's set apart to be a mouthpiece for God himself and his heart becomes calcified and rigid. What's going to stop our hearts from becoming hardened and calcified and recalcitrant towards those who don't know God. This is my third point. The power of compassion. The power. You never forget it when someone shows you genuine compassion. I bet there's some stories here that you could share of people showing you genuine compassion. It just leaves a mark, an indelible impression, an indelible mark on our hearts. I asked Emily this during the week. I often go to her when I need help for sermons. And she said immediately, when my mum died, there was a family at church who cooked dinner for our family every Wednesday night for six months. Why does she remember that? Left a mark. Felt the love. Felt the compassion. When we speak about compassion, though, it is a bit nebulous, isn't it? It's a little bit 
hard to pin down. What are we talking about? Compassion is a form of love which is aroused when we see someone suffering, someone struggling, someone vulnerable. Compassion gives us the fuel to act in kindness and and mercy. And it's not unique to Christianity, don't hear me say that. But Christianity does have unique reasons for having compassion and nurturing compassion as well. And so I want to get a bit more practical now as we head for home. When it comes to the needs of people around us, and everyone has needs, then there there are two main spheres that we could put people in, or two main spheres of of needs that people have. There's the human needs of funds and work and resources and compassion and care and need and support and friends and education. And then the other sphere of need is what we might say a human's greatest need, to know God and his son and the death and resurrection and to be reconciled back to him. And I just want to say, in case there's any misunderstanding, Christians are concerned for both, right? Absolutely. As followers of Jesus, we are concerned for both. We're absolutely concerned about alleviating people's physical, social, mental struggles. And we're absolutely concerned, of course, for people's salvation. And we just follow the example of Jesus. Jesus fed the hungry and challenged them to follow him. He healed the sick. And encouraged them to be healed spiritually too. He protected the woman from being stoned physically and then said, neither do I condemn you, go and leave your life of sin. That's the pattern we follow. But just think to yourself for a moment, if that was a continuum with social human need down here and, 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 and some of the greatest need down this end, where would you sort of fall? Where would you put yourself on that continuum? You might be down the end that let, let's get, let's focus on people's human needs, let's alleviate the poverty, or, and that's brilliant. Or you might be down this end, let's, let's speak the word of God to them, preach the gospel to them about Jesus Christ so that they might come to know him. Don't get me wrong, both are ways of showing compassion and Jesus is pleased with both, but of course not at the exclusion of the other. But with my pastor's hat on, And my ministry experience in looking at my own life, I would say that most people are probably more comfortable caring for people's immediate needs than they are with their greatest need. And I think the reason for that is because when we focus on human needs, people cheer us on. Now, there's a ministry, I don't know much about it, I'm still getting my head around this place, there was a ministry recently here for... Uh, a women's shelter or something like that in the hall. It looked like an incredible thing. It looks like there was local businesses sponsoring it and you know, radio station and, and maybe even Camden Council cheering us on. And so they should because it's a good thing to do. But let's hold an event called Healing Your Greatest Need. Turning from darkness to light. And there'll just be silence from Camden Council, I guarantee you. And maybe the business community as well. Yeah, no one's going to be cheering us on when we do that. And so let's go out on a limb here and I'll ask you to reflect on this. The thing that makes it more difficult to show compassion on someone's greatest need rather than their immediate needs is our desire for approval. 
which is like a drug. I'm speaking from personal experience. I love approval. Many others do as well. I wish I was immune to it. And as long as we desire to have people's approval of us more than we want them to come to know Jesus Christ, we won't get around to connecting and inviting and sharing God's word with them because we want their approval. The thing that will bring about growth of compassion at a heart level is that to the degree we understand what Jesus has accomplished for us. The king of Nineveh, remember the four verbs, he rises from his throne, he took off his royal robes, he covered himself with sackcloth, a sign of mourning, and sat down in the dust, a sign of humility. Some of you can see where I'm going here. What did Jesus do? Rose from his eternal throne, took off the royal garb, wrapped himself in swaddling cloths in a manger, we've already heard that tonight, put on flesh, Covered in a royal robe, which may, may as well have been Hessian, uh, a robe of derision and a crown of thorns, fell to his knees in the garden, in the dust, and then lay on his back to be fixed to a cross. The king of Nineveh, the leader of all Ninevites, gives an edict and leads the way. Jesus Christ, the second Adam, the true Adam, leads the way as well. Leads his people. There's differences, of course. The king of Nineveh, guilty as sin. Jesus never sinned. Embodied the life of compassion. Yet had conviction too. He said to the woman caught in adultery, leave your life of sin. But he also said, neither do I condemn you. He protected her. He saved her from death. That's what we're to be. We are to have conviction. We do flex that muscle. We are to have compassion. Compassion, we flex that muscle too. We don't just have conviction without compassion, nor do we have compassion without conviction. How does genuine compassion grow inside us? You need to receive it. You can't give away what you don't have. And friends, when we know we have Jesus' approval, his stamp of approval on our lives, when he sees us and loves us and puts our loves on, his love on us, sets us apart for his good purposes at the cost of his life. The pull of other people's approval in our lives, which we all feel in one way or another, isn't quite as strong. And our heart slowly inclines towards Jesus' approval and not other people's. <clears throat> Friends, do you want God's compassion in your life? It flows downhill to those on their knees, to those who are humble before him. They're the ones that receive his compassion and mercy. And then it can flow into the lives of those around us as well. Is there someone in your life now that you can think of that needs your compassion, either in a human need or their greatest need? Start by humbling yourself before God and receive his compassion so it might flow into their lives because it's from that place we are in a better place to show compassion to those around us. And so may that be true of us this week, friends. May the scales from our eyes fall away as we see those around us who cross our path that need compassion, God's compassion in their lives. I'm going to pray that that might be true for us. Pray with me. Lord God, we thank you that you love us and made us and created us to love our fellow creatures. 
Father, give us opportunity this week to live a life of compassion. May it grow firstly in our hearts when we see that you rose and took off and put on and knelt down for us. And Lord, we pray that we would regularly be on our knees receiving your compassion so that might flow into the lives of others. And Lord, through that compassion, may we be a conduit of your grace to the people who cross our paths so that an abundant harvest might come in for the sake of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.